We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cast. Good morning. It was dark before dawn on June 2nd, 1863. Union boats had covertly sailed up the Combe River in South Carolina's Low Country near the Atlantic coast. Along the way, federal soldiers destroyed more than half a dozen rice plantations, burning the estates and steam-powered rice mills. In the chaos and billowing smoke, hundreds of enslaved black people seized the moment and raced to board Yankee vessels. As the crowd grew, Colonel James Montgomery, Union commander of the 2nd South Carolina Volunteers, shouted to Harriet Tubman from the upper deck of the USS John Adams, urging her to calm the crowd. Tubman lifted her voice and sang, Of all the mighty nations in the East or in the West, oh, this glorious Yankee nation is the greatest and the best. We have room for all creation, and our banner is unfurled. Here's a general invitation to the people of the world. This stunning moment, and many more, are brought to life in the new book, Cumby, Harriet Tubman, The Cumby River Raid, and Black Freedom During the Civil War. Author Etta Fields Black, an associate professor of history at Carnegie Mellon University, will be at Enoch Pratt Central Library tonight at 7 p.m. to discuss it. Etta Fields Black, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So let's take a step back. What was Harriet Tubman doing in South Carolina? I know. Isn't it delicious? Um, Tubman came down to Beaufort, South Carolina in May of 1862, end of May. Um, She was sent down by the governor, John Andrews, governor of Massachusetts, to serve as a spy for the U.S. Army. And this was after the Battle of Port Royal in November of 1861, when the U.S. Navy drove its armada up Port Royal Sound. The planters and enslavers fled, and the enslaved people were no longer enslaved and became contrabands of war, and the Union Army refused to return them to the Confederate planters. So this created the largest social movement in history to date, the Port Royal Experiment. Many Northern abolitionists came down to Beaufort and Port Royal in the Sea Islands, uh, and Tubman was one of them. Um, And as I said, she came down, sent by the governor of Massachusetts to serve as a spy. So Harriet Tubman was there primarily as a spy. What, What was she doing? She worked in the camps where people, formerly enslaved people who fled Confederate controlled territory and they came behind the Union, they came into the Union occupied territories. And there were so many of them. There were so many of them. Started out about 8,000 formerly enslaved people in Beaufort in the Sea Islands. And that population just grew because anybody who could get to Beaufort and who could get to, quote unquote, freedom went. Um, And so the U.S. Army established these camps. We might liken them today to refugee camps, to people who were coming from Confederate controlled territory. Tubman worked in those camps and she interviewed people. Um, She talked to people who were coming from the other side and talk to them about what they saw, what they knew, what they heard um, in this Confederate-controlled territory. 
and she passed on what she learned from them to the U.S. Army commanders. Why was control of South Carolina's low country important to the Union? Well, you know, these are where the first shots were fired with the Battle of Fort Sumter. This is where the South Atlantic blockade was taking place after the Battle of Port Royal. This is also the low country portion, so not the Sea Islands, not Port Royal, but the coastal plains right in the immediate interior are where the rice plantations are located. And this was one of the Confederacy's breadbaskets, rice that was produced in coastal South Carolina and Georgia was used to provision the Confederate army. And who were the plantation owners living in the lower Cumbie? They were extremely wealthy, most of them rice planters. There were two of the largest slaveholding families in South Carolina and one of them in the South on the river. And this particular family owned, I think, 17 plantations north of where the Cumbie Raid took place. But they also owned plantations on the Lower Cumbie, one of which was raided. For the most part, these were some pretty wealthy individuals and individuals who had more than one property, more than one plantation. So they only lived on their rice plantations during the the late fall and winter. And so from mid-March up until the first frost in November, which is around Thanksgiving, after Thanksgiving, they would live elsewhere because of the disease environment. So they were only living ordinarily on these plantations for a few months out of the year. So June 2nd, 1863, high tide, full moon. Over the course of several hours, the second South Carolina volunteers attacked seven rice plantations, destroyed $6 million in property. Who were the soldiers of the second South Carolina? The soldiers were formerly enslaved men. There were about 300 of them in the regiment at the time. There were men who were from Beaufort, Uh, and from the Sea Islands who were with Colonel James Montgomery before the regiment was organized. Montgomery then went down to Key West, Florida, and enlisted a number of men down there, then came back and filled out some of the companies in the regiment in Beaufort and the Sea Islands. So some of these men were from relatively close to where the raid took place, They all escaped enslavement after the Battle of Port Royal and November 1861, enlisted in the 2nd South Carolina Volunteers after January 1st, 1863, after the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect. This is On the Record. I'm Sheila Cass speaking with historian Etta Fields Black about her new book, Cumbie, Harriet Tubman, The Cumbie River Raid, and Black Freedom During the Civil War. After the raid, Harriet Tubman told journalist Frank Sanborn that she and Colonel Montgomery's men helped liberate 756 enslaved people. Broadly, what do we know about this group? Ah, I'm so glad you asked. So the Cumbie Freedom Seekers were enslaved on these seven rice plantations. And this is the first time that we get to know who they are to know their names, to know their stories and their family stories. I would say 
roughly 30% of them were not actually born on the Cumbi. So I traced them, you know, where were they born and how were they sold, mortgaged, bequeathed and given away until they ended up on these seven plantations. In the book, they tell us the names of their family members, which is, I have to say, it is really the first time that enslaved people and that an enslaved community has been identified in this way and that enslaved people are telling their stories of enslavement and of freedom in their own voices. So these people were mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and lovers and aunties and uncles and cousins. They remembered their weddings. They remembered who attended their weddings, who married them. They remember who who visited after their children were born. This was a community. You know, they went to the praise house, uh, which we would call a church, uh, together. Um, they worshiped together. They supported each other. And they talk about their community in the pension files, people whose names we haven't heard before. One of the men was named Minus Hamilton. Tell us briefly about Minus. Yes, Minus is the leading man of the book. He gives his life story a few weeks after the raid. He says that he was 88 years old when the Cumbie raid took place and that he and the other enslaved laborers on the plantation were already in the rice fields hoeing rice at 4 a.m. when they first saw sight of the U.S. Army gunboats. He talks about the overseer also being in the rice fields and telling them to go and hide in the woods. And everyone went right past the overseer, ignoring him and went straight to the boats. Minus Hamilton also talks about seeing these young Black soldiers from the 2nd South Carolina in uniform for the first time. And he's in complete awe of the Black soldiers, how they hold their heads up and defy authority and just burn down everything on the plantation where he was held in bondage. He and his wife and their family go to the boats to freedom. Not all the enslaved people laboring on the Cumbi rice plantations made it onto the boats. That's correct. Um, Unfortunately, some were held back by overseers and by uh, soldiers in the Confederate Army um, who spent, you know, who couldn't stop the raid. And so they spent most of their time notifying the planters and the overseers who were on site and helping them to to stop people from going to the boats. One of the overseers shot a girl and killed Uh. her. And then there were people who had already been evacuated. So after the Battle of Port Royal, some of the Cumby planters on some of the surrounding plantations had evacuated their enslaved populations and taken them further inland as they had been instructed to do by the Confederate Army. But these seven planters refused to do so. They doubled down and continued to to grow rice, which was very profitable. When the boats that were carrying the Union soldiers and the freedom seekers got back to Buford, what, what was the mood like? Oh, it was celebration. It was celebration. And in Buford, by that time, you had 
thousands of people who were free, thousands of free Black people, some of whom escaped bondage as early as November 1861. But even after that, there were just waves of people coming into Beaufort and the Sea Islands. And that morning, they turned out to watch as the Cumbie Freedom Seekers paraded down the main street in downtown Beaufort. And if you can imagine that these freed people had established communities, they had reunited their families, they were working, and most of them providing for themselves. And this was the largest group of freedom seekers to be brought into Buford. And they were in very poor condition, very ragged, very bony, you know, malnourished, injured, and wearing the same dirty gray field clothes, the newspapers described them, that they wore that morning to the rice fields, just tatters. And they marched down the street proudly to freedom. We need to take a break in our conversation with Carnegie Mellon University historian Etta Fields Black. We're talking about her book, Cumbie, Harriet Tubman, The Cumbie River Raid, and Black Freedom During the Civil War. She'll be at the Enoch Pratt Free Library tonight, 7 p.m., to talk about it. When we're back from a short break, how pension records held the key to unlocking the lives of freedom seekers. I'm Sheila Kess. Stay with us. I'm Al Waller. I'm Katherine Collinson. And I'm Mihaela Vince. In upcoming episodes of Clear Path, Your Roadmap for Life, we'll discuss ways to catch up on retirement savings and the importance of self-care. Tune in to WYPR's website and mobile app, all major podcast platforms, and transamericainstitute.org. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. Using pension records, bills of sale, wills, personal letters, newspaper articles, and more, historian Etta Fields Black traces the lives of more than 700 enslaved men and women who grabbed their chance at freedom during the 1863 Cumbie River Raid and highlights Harriet Tubman's extraordinary service as a Union spy. How did this raid change the trajectory of the Civil War? What happened to the formerly enslaved men who enlisted with the Union? Etta Fields Black answers these questions in Cumbie, Harriet Tubman, The Cumbie River Raid, and Black Freedom During the Civil War. Tonight at 7 p.m., Fields Black will join the Enoch Pratt Central Library for an in-person and virtual conversation. 150 men enlisted in the 2nd South Carolina Volunteers the morning after the Cumbie River Raid. They're part of more than 186,000 black men who joined the U.S. Colored Troops after the war, Professor Fields Black, what, what challenges did these veterans encounter when trying to apply for a pension? There were so many. These men were overwhelmingly illiterate and didn't have the kinds of documentation that one needed to provide the federal government, such as a birth certificate for one's children, a marriage certificate. They also, you know, it was difficult to even understand the process and difficult on the Cumbie uh, because of the distance, because the remoteness of the terrain to get to towns where they had to file their applications in person. 
it was also, it was expensive. You know, one had to hire an attorney, possibly more than one, to assemble the kind of paperwork that one needed to prove one's identity, to prove one's marriage. Often people changed their names after slavery and during freedom during slavery, people really, enslaved people really didn't have official last names. They were only known by first names. Sometimes they're known by the name of the slaveholder. And then after freedom, people, if they're known by the slaveholder's name, often rejected that name and chose other names. So even proving one's identity was very difficult because one could be known by various names at different points in one's life. It could take years for soldiers or widows to be able to amass the documentation that was needed. And these were not wealthy people. These are people who were destitute and needed these pension benefits to live. And so it was very difficult to survive without the benefits while trying to attain the benefits. Pension records revealed you have a personal connection to the Cumbie River Raid. Tell us about that. I do. And this was an incidental finding of the book. Um, My father's family is from about a mile away from where the raid happened. And as I started the book, I had a suspicion that we might have been involved in the raid. And I think my theory was that we had been freed in the raid. And I had much more information about my paternal grandmother's family than my paternal grandfather's family, but I had a line of descent from my third great-grandfather down to my dad. And with that, and with the help of the International African American Museum's Center for Family History, with which I partnered to do the genealogical work for the book, we were able to find that my third great-grandfather, Hector Fields, enlisted in the 2nd South Carolina Volunteers in March of 1863 and fought in the raid. And my grandmother's family, who were enslaved a mile away from the raid where the raid took place, they were actually evacuated before the raid took place. And so they were not on the river um, in June of 1863. So they technically got left behind because they remained in bondage until after the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect. This is On the Record. I'm Sheila Cass speaking with historian Etta Fields-Black about her book, Cumbie, Harriet Tubman, The Cumbie River Raid, and Black Freedom During the Civil War. So after the raid, Tubman's military service continued. She worked for General Terry, commander of the 7th Regiment of Connecticut Volunteer Infantry. She did relief work in Washington, D.C. Did she receive a pension? She received a pension as a widow. And many people don't know that Tubman actually remarried after the war. And after her second husband died, she applied and was granted his pension as his widow. She then, through an act of Congress, was able to get a raise of, I I believe, $8, so $20 per month for her work as a nurse during the Civil War. She wore many hats, and she was a spy, scout, nurse, laundress, cook, Uh, but she never received compensation for her work as a spy or a scout. Was her service as a spy ever recognized? 
<laughs> it was actually recognized just a few years ago. Um, it took that long, but she was inducted to the Military uh, Hall of Fame, first as an honorary member, then as a full member. Um, it was recognized by the commanders um, under which she served, who wrote brief affidavits for her attempts to be compensated by the U.S. government through pension benefits and acts of Congress. So generals David Hunter, uh, Rufus Saxton, Colonel James Montgomery wrote that she was a spy or a scout, you know, during the Civil War. That's the only recognition she received up until a few years ago. Meanwhile, plantation owners were able to seek pardons and compensation for loss of their land. They were. They were. They actually applied to the Confederate government to be reimbursed for their losses. Those They were never paid for those because, of course, the Confederate government did not have the funds. One planter got his taxes. He was able to take his losses off on his taxes. Um, and so there was a small reduction there. Um, but one planter's descendants, by act of Congress in the 1930s, were paid for their father's losses to the tune at the time of about $30,000. So it's a significant amount of money. Uh, it was a significant amount of money then, and it's a significant amount of money now. What should we take away about the significance of the Cumbie River Raid? I think that... First of all, the Cumbie River Raid was the largest slave revolt in U.S. history. And wow. I say that, number one, to put it into context of the fact that 756 people were freed and without loss of a single life on the Union side. Whereas when you look at the Stono Rebellion when you look at Nat Turner, when you look at Denmark Vesey, when you look at all of these other attempted slave revolts in U.S. history, everybody dies, right? Not one of them was successful. This one takes place during the Civil War. It's conducted by the U.S. Army. It's led by Harriet Tubman. And it was the only one that was successful in our nation's history. And second only to the Haitian Revolution in the entire New World. I think that, you know, by this time in June of 1863, the U.S. Army, the U.S. military was depending on the intelligence of Black people, formerly enslaved people, people who Confederate planters, farmers, and Confederate military had used to do the labor. So, Black people knew the Confederate holdings and were able to give this information to the U.S. military. It's also a time by 1865 when 500,000 enslaved people had liberated themselves, escaped bondage, and gone into U.S. occupied territory. So it became inevitable that the destruction of slavery was going to happen. And it happened not only in Congress and by 
you know, actions of the president. And I'm thinking of this confiscation acts and the emancipation proclamation, but the agency of enslaved people who seized their freedom and who leveraged the presence of the U.S. military to protect them, which led to the downfall of slavery. The last point I like to make is that I think we finally see here what freedom means, that Harriet Tubman, the second South Carolina volunteers, and over 180,000 U.S. colored troop soldiers, as well as countless spies, scouts, pilots who didn't enlist in the military, were willing to risk their freedom and to risk their very lives so that other people who were still in bondage could be free. And to them, they're willing to risk their lives, I think, because they knew that freedom was not free. And to them, being re-enslaved was a fate worse than death. This is so exciting. Thank you for telling us about it. Thank you for having me. It's been a joy. Etta Fields-Black is an associate professor of history at Carnegie Mellon University and the author of Cumbie, Harriet Tubman, The Cumbie River Raid, and Black Freedom During the Civil War. She'll be speaking at the Enoch Pratt Central Library tonight at 7 p.m. The event will be held in person and virtually. We have details at the On the Record page at wypr.org. I'm Sheila Cast. Glad you're with us on the record. Come back tomorrow. Thank you.